Thank you, Susan. Good morning, everyone. I love it when a group actually says that with some gusto instead of me having to uh, draw it out of everyone. I, um, I have so, so much to be grateful for and thankful for this morning. Uh, grateful for, for the opportunity here uh, to speak before you today. Grateful for Susan, Susan's introduction. Uh, grateful for support from my partner, Tori, who uh, is a wonderful wordsmither and has, has supported me in, uh, in coming up with the, the talk that I'm, I'm going to uh, present here today. Grateful for Rich Reese and the Earth Ethics Committee uh, team for... Uh, bringing me here today. Uh, Grateful for my father and mother who couldn't be here today because, interestingly, my father is also uh, speaking to a congregation this morning, not something that either of us often do. He's uh, an executive director with a community benefit organization that works on uh, food equity, and uh, he he works on a food pantry. He's talking about uh, feeding the many and feeding the community today. So, uh, so grateful for the support of my my loving parents, and uh, I know they're looking forward to hearing the recording of this uh, after uh, after the platform. (laughs) So, uh, as Susan said, I'm a staff organizer with the Sierra Club, which means I spend most of my time educating the public about important advocacy opportunities in Maryland, and building up volunteer teams to accomplish the goals of our organization's campaigns. Right now, uh, which you can learn more about outside, we are working to clean up toxic air pollution and curb carbon emissions from Maryland's coal-burning power plants, four of which are the most polluting plants on the East Coast, all of which lack modern pollution control technologies that could save lives and clean up our air. I could talk for hours and hours about sulfur dioxide and ozone pollution and our campaign to clean up dirty coal, but I'm going to save that discussion for coffee and snacks after the platform for those who are interested. Today, I'm going to talk about my journey as a community organizer and what I have learned along the way. I hope you'll learn something about yourself as well and that you will walk away with some simple tools for making the world a better place on Earth Day and every day. Before I get started, I want to express again how grateful I am for this opportunity. It is a privilege that I am standing here today. Not only is it a privilege to be invited here by Rich and so welcomed so warmly to this community, but I am privileged in a lot of ways. I've worked hard in my life to get where I am today, but many of the opportunities available to me were only available because of my unearned privilege. I'm privileged as a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male who grew up in an affluent suburb of Philadelphia to securely employed parents who I love very, very much. I'm financially independent with a minimal amount of debt, not something that many people my age who went to college can say anymore, and a strong family and community safety net that I can count on in case of just about any emergency. I am saying this because I think it is important to be honest about these privileges that people in my position often take for granted when we work with many communities throughout Maryland and around the world. And I acknowledge that my privilege is an integral part of the story that I'm about to tell. I grew up as a first-generation Quaker, a faith otherwise known as the Religious Society of Friends. My parents both grew up in Methodist families, had a brief stint in the Unitarian Universalist Church together, and it started attending Quaker meeting about the same time that I was born. I'm not particularly active within Quaker circles anymore for a variety of reasons, but I was very involved as a young Quaker, and growing up in that community really did shape my values. There are six core Quaker values, or testimonies, and we have an easy mnemonic to remember them. Spices, simplicity, peace, integrity, 
community, equality, and stewardship. I want to take a look at that last one for a moment, stewardship. The activity or job of protecting and being responsible for something. I most often hear the word stewardship used in relationship to the environment, especially this time of year. But to me, it is much more than that. The testimony of stewardship ties all of the others together and puts them to work. To be a good steward of the environment, one must support and be responsible for a thriving community of authentic people who use resources wisely, restore justice to conflict, and acknowledge the hero in everyone. One of my favorite examples of good community stewardship in action is a potluck. Quakers love potlucks. And I get the sense that people here at the Ethical Society might as well. You know, the best part about a good potluck is that they're rarely perfect. Plates might be in short supply, someone didn't get the vegetarian memo, or my favorite, the chips and diplock featuring eight different kinds of hummus and guacamole. (laughs) Nevertheless, there is abundance. Everyone brings their own unique dish to the table, and we all make a contribution to the benefit of everyone. We can share the responsibility of stewardship in the same way. In fact, we must share in stewardship if we are going to overcome the grand challenges we face as humans on a warming planet. And we must do so consistently, not just on Earth Day. As an organizer with the Sierra Club, being a good steward is my full-time job. It's funny. I always feel odd calling my work a job because this organizing, as Tori knows, is essentially my default state. I love connecting passionate people to other passionate people in a way that accomplishes a shared vision. And I've done that for as long as I can remember. Now, it just happens to pay my rent and put food on the table. Yet, if you had asked me five or even three years ago if I would ever pursue a career as a professional community organizer, I probably would have chuckled and said, that's not for me. I have my degree in electrical engineering, after all. Yet here I am, a few days before Earth Day, talking with you about environmental stewardship as a staff member of the Sierra Club. So today I'm going to share with you a few of the experiences that have shaped my unique brand of stewardship as a millennial coming of age in a new era defined by climate change, the recipe for my dish at the potluck, so to speak, and what I've learned about the importance of honoring the recipes of others so we all can thrive. My recipe begins with a healthy portion of science. I've always been a scientist at heart. My father has his PhD in analytical chemistry. You might be wondering, how is he an executive director of a community benefit organization now? We actually come from similar organizations. He likes to joke, uh, it took me 20 years to come from the hard scientist into a nonprofit. It took my son six months after he graduated. <laughs> Our grand- my, his father and my grandfather has a similar background. Growing up, I watched PBS, Star Trek, and Bill Nye the Science Guy on TV instead of cartoons. Science was my favorite subject in school, and there are probably still circuit boards littering my backyard where I dismantled countless electronic devices as a child to see how they worked, with and without permission. I don't remember when I first learned about climate change and our responsibility to, create, to care for the environment, but I knew what stewardship meant at a young age because the science behind it made a lot of sense to me. Environmental protection and global warming were actually core curriculum in my public school, along with math and English. Because the topic was so casually addressed, I assumed that everyone else was aware of the problems and that it was all being taken care of. 
I did eventually become involved in the environmental club at my high school, but that was mostly because I wanted to spend time with friends. I didn't really grasp the gravity of our situation, that people were being hurt by environmental injustice and climate change, and nobody was doing enough to restore justice, until I left for my college at the University of Pittsburgh. That's when I met people my age who were organizing on campus and in the community to address climate change and systemic oppression in ways I had never experienced before. My new friends verified that climate change does indeed exist, and it was not being taken care of as I had assumed. I learned that the responsibility of stewardship is ours to bear, and that my generation would have to live with the consequences of climate devastation if we all didn't act soon. My initial vision of someday engineering recording studio equipment quickly changed to someday engineering solar panels and windmills. Then my vision changed even more radically when I met the Hallowich family. I visited Chris and Stephanie Hallowich a few years after they bought their dream home in a rural farming community about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. They didn't know when they moved in with their two kids that their property was on top of a rich shale gas deposit about a mile underground called the Marcellus Shale. And the previous homeowners sold their mineral rights to the natural gas drilling company Range Resources. There was nothing the Hallowich family could do to stop Range Resources when they came to set up a hydraulic fracturing operation under their property. You might have heard about this unconventional method for extracting natural gas, which is often called fracking. The technique pumps water, sand, and caustic chemicals deep underground to fracture shale rock and release methane gas that has been trapped in that rock for millennia. Sometimes the toxic frac fluid leaks into the water aquifer, and that's exactly what happened to the Hallowich family's water well. I will never forget looking in the tank of their toilet and seeing the cloudy soup coming from their well that had practically ruined the pipes and stained the white porcelain orange with corrosion. The family knew something was wrong when they started to develop rashes every time they showered, and so they asked the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection to test their well for contamination. The DEP concluded that their water was indeed toxic, but Range Resources insisted that it wasn't their fault. They claimed the Hallowich family well was already failing and that it coincidentally went foul at the same time they started fracking. The DEP had no power to challenge Range on their claims, and so the Hallowich family was forced to buy a massive water cistern for the garage and pay out of pocket for fresh water to be trucked in weekly. This wasn't the only problem. They told me about the putrid smells which belched from the well pads and processing stations near their home and how they feared what the odors could be doing to their health. And worst of all, they couldn't move away at that time because their dream home became practically worthless on the market since drilling started. Several years later, the story ends with with an okay ending, the Hallowich family settled a hard-fought lawsuit against range resources and received enough money to buy a new home in exchange for agreeing not to talk publicly about what happened. Even their children are subject to the gag order. Seeing this injustice firsthand, and knowing it was one of many similar cases of extreme extraction destroying communities, kindled a fire in me, and my path became clear. I no longer saw myself as an engineer, per se, and I started to see myself as an engineer of communities or an organizer working to build power for change with the communities I stored. Most importantly... I realized that many people live in communities that experience acute impacts of pollution and climate change, which more privileged communities, like my own, are often shielded from. I didn't grow up next to a fracking well or a coal plant because my parents had the ability to choose another place to raise a family. 
I could not unsee that injustice. And so I started to organize with a group working for a ban on fracking in Pittsburgh and in the state of Pennsylvania. Strategically, winning this campaign required passing a zoning ordinance from city council with enough votes to override the mayor's veto, who's in the industry's pocket. But on a whole other level, winning a ban required many different voices from many different perspectives to unify and work together, to cook together. Everyone seemed to have their own vision for how to reach our goals. Some people wanted to do civil disobedience, while others thought a simple petition would do the trick. The feelers and the thinkers disagreed over messaging. The youth had different ideas about online organizing. And the environmentalists, doctors, and Tea Party types disagreed about the fundamental motivation for the campaign. To save the sensitive ecosystem, protect our health, or defend land rights. We had some brutally long meetings because of these differences. But we also had leaders who were gifted in the art of conflict resolution and bringing everyone together around our shared vision a frack-free Pennsylvania. One of my proudest moments as an organizer was when I marched alongside hundreds of these community members and young activists through downtown Pittsburgh to rally outside the convention center where Carl Rove was telling the nation's top gas industry executives at a conference that, quote, the climate movement is gone. I don't think you need to worry. Carl Rove should have been shaking in his boots on that podium because a few days later, the city of Pittsburgh made history when the city council unanimously passed a resolution to prohibit fracking within city limits. It was the first local ordinance of its kind in the world, and there have been many more since. The climate movement is strong. I learned a lot about movement organizing on that campaign, and most importantly, I learned that everyone has their own vision for the future and how to affect the change necessary to get there. Different people have different ideas of what should take priority and what the movement needs to focus on. Of course, although each person's vision is perfect in their own mind's eye, any one vision rarely works out to be perfect in physical reality. This is because the only predictable trait of physical reality is indeed unpredictability. Maybe a funding source dries up when it's needed the most, or the website crashes on launch day, or someone forgets to bring plates to the potluck. Life happens in imperfect ways, so we often operate on plan B, C, or D instead of plan A. Many campaigns have fallen into the trap of trying to follow one very specific vision, trying to stick to plan A no matter what, and losing bright people who see it differently in the process. Leaders in these sorts of campaigns often realize too late that some aspect of their original vision won't go according to plan, and it all falls apart. That's why... Just like a good potluck, where the imperfection becomes irrelevant in the warm light of abundance, we need plenty of skills, perspectives, and tactics to affect the change we need. And the best way to make room for that abundance, in my experience, is by acknowledging the hero in everyone involved. When we strive to understand and lift up the vision of each and every changemaker as a hero and leader in their own right, our movements become resilient to the unexpected and we are more likely to achieve the change we need. Doing this is not always easy to see the hero in everyone, especially when emotions run wild in a meeting or other setting, or where we have disagreements. In that scenario, it becomes easy to see others in a negative light, or through a red lens, as I sometimes think of it. We may have thoughts that sound like, there's something wrong with this person, they're just wrong. 
or this person is such a drain on me and our campaign. We will never move forward without them, with them involved. We can get so caught up in seeing a person through the red lens that we close ourselves off to the gifts they have to contribute, and we lose an opportunity to grow our movement. So I'm going to share with you a mental tool that helps me practice seeing the hero in people that I call the green lens, which I learned from one of my mentors, Maria Nemeth. Here's the unexpected audience participation part of the speech. Are you ready? Okay, so turn to the person next to you. Go ahead. Look each other in the eye. Maintain that eye contact. That's important. Really see the other person. Now take a deep breath. And repeat after me. This person is a hero, whole and complete. Wait, wait, wait until I finish and then you can go. This person has goals, dreams, and a desire to make a difference. This person has all their own answers. This person is contributing to me right now. This person deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. I use this list of affirmations as a sort of mantra, and I make a guarantee to myself every morning that I will see others in this light. I even keep the list written on a card that I take to meetings and events. Rich might have seen it before. When I start to feel that someone is being a drain on me, I take a deep breath, remember the green lens, and choose to believe that this person is indeed a contribution to me and the work we are doing together. It is a powerful tool that is integral to my organizing, and I invite you to practice it in your own life. By using this tool, I have learned the power of an increasingly popular slogan in the climate justice movement. To change everything, it takes everyone. Now, change is going to happen no matter what. That is a given. But now we humans are faced with a decision to either radically change our behavior and support a planet we can thrive on or continue burning through our carbon budget and change our planet into an inhospitable oven. We are all stewards of the planet and we are all responsible for the outcome, for better or worse, regardless of how deep in denial we might be about our present situation. To be frank, the present situation is looking dire for my generation in particular and the next. Our governments are doing too little too slowly to avoid the tipping points to runaway climate change. Meanwhile, extreme extraction industries like fracking, boiling crude oil out of tar sands, and mountaintop removal coal mining are accelerating us toward the point of no return. Our planet is already showing signs of severe exhaustion in the form of more severe storms, rising seas, and extreme drought. Nevertheless, we must not get lost in despair, and we must be willing to work collectively toward a vision for a thriving, abundant earth. How do we do that work? We organize, and we involve everyone in the potluck. By involve everyone, I don't just mean giving everyone a seat at the table. We need to go beyond that and cook together. Cooking together means trying some new ingredients and techniques to better understand another perspective. It means taking a close look at the menu and how it's put together. Is everyone invited, actually involved, and supported in the process of cooking together? If the menu is all comfort food, then who is it comfortable for? One person's comfort food might make another person, everyone else at the table, very uncomfortable. Might smell different, might look funny, 
You might not really want to eat it. But that can lead to exclusive behavior when the majority is unwilling to respect a different perspective and try something new. My point here is that the way our movements operate might work well for a particular group of people, but they all too often exclude other people who would make a great contribution if given a safe space to do so. So, are we willing to support everyone in our community to make the contribution they are here to make, even if it means being a bit uncomfortable with a different way of doing things? Are we willing to listen and contribute to a dialogue that will generate an equitable discussion and a way of coming to consensus? In order to build power and affect the change we need, we need to say yes to these questions and build a safe space for an intersectional movement that gives everyone a voice and lifts up those differences that make us stronger. And sometimes we must push past our comfort zone to create that space. The climate justice movement has started to create that space by learning from Martin Luther King's belief that injustice everywhere is a threat to ju- injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we are applying that lesson to connect what were previously thought of as disparate movements, climate and environment, with all human rights. We are starting to connect indigenous rights with fights to stop extreme extraction, LGBTQ rights with workers' rights, and civil rights with our right to breathe clean air. We are organizing alongside our brothers and sisters in the global south and sinking island nations while we also work for a sustainable future here in North America and Europe. We call it climate justice because we recognize the impacts of climate change will be distributed disproportionately based more or less on privilege. And we can't stand idly by at home while the effects of climate devastation are already being felt elsewhere in the world. We have seen many examples of the growing climate justice movement in recent years. The campaign to stop the Keystone XL pipeline and tar sands extraction has consistently lifted up the voices of indigenous peoples and they're starting to win. The People's Climate March, which brought 400,000 people together in New York City last fall, used the slogan, to change everything, it takes everyone, extensively. And the organizers ensured that communities on the front lines of climate change were involved throughout the process. And this summer, we will see the launch of an exciting new campaign called Gulf South Rising, which will highlight the environmental injustice faced by people in the southern United States who are most affected by climate change, but are often, very often sidelined while much of the political action happens in places here, like Washington, D.C. On a global scale, civil society has commanded an increasingly more visible presence at annual United Nations climate action negotiations in a way that puts these peoples most imminently affected by climate devastation front and center. The ranks are forming once again this December for the landmark climate negotiations in Paris when world leaders are expected to see an international treaty that would pick up where the Kyoto Protocol left off. And I am hopeful about what our power can accomplish there. This all goes to say that we are the most effective stewards when we are working in solidarity with a diversity of people, cooking together, and building a safe space for an intersectional movement to overcome oppression. My vision as shaped by my experiences, is to be part of a local and intersectional community-centered environment movement of stewardly chefs who all come together and work for justice holistically and radically, climate justice included. I hope that you see something in this vision for yourself. Make it your own, and I invite you to act on Earth Day and every day after that in some way. 
Of course, I would be remiss as an organizer if I didn't ask you to write letters to the editor, sign our petition, vote, lobby your elected officials, join demonstrations in your area, and plan actions with your own community. Please, do all of those things and do them often. It is very necessary. But also take some time this Earth Day and every day to connect with people on the front lines of a struggle for justice in or near your own community. I guarantee that they exist. Pull out your green lens and ask your neighbors, young people, and people who look different than you do about their experience of injustice and what their vision is for the world. Share your own vision and talk about how you can support each other in making the change you wish to see. Then go do it. Cook together. Take steps every chance you get to push those visions into physical reality. No matter how imperfect the results are, invite some friends, share the abundance, and know that you have contributed to the benefit of everyone and that they have contributed to you. Thank you.